This episode is brought to you by Seed. Did you know that supporting your health can be as easy as taking two capsules a day? Each daily dose of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic is formulated with 24 scientifically studied probiotic strains that support gut, skin, and heart health, helping you start the new year off right. Visit seed.com slash Spotify and use code SPOTIFY25 to get 25% off your first month. Hi, everyone. Lucas here, creator of Monster in the Mirror. And before we begin this week's episode, I just want to take a minute to acknowledge uh, the horrifying massacre at Club Q in Colorado Springs, perpetrated by the homophobic grandson of a Republican assemblyman in a major epicenter of the Christian right. We were actually supposed to release this episode on the 21st, but because it deals with transphobia and uh, portrayals of transphobic violence, we felt it was a little too raw to release it um, on November 21st, just uh, over a day after the horrific massacre in Colorado Springs. There are times when the subject matter in this podcast pops up in the news with disturbing clarity, and this was one of those times. So I just wanted to reiterate that while the liberatory and affirming nature of this episode is hopefully clear, um, it's going to involve discussion of explicitly transphobic and homophobic audio clips, uh, as well as an examination of the portrayals of transphobic violence found in the novel we're discussing uh, in this episode. And finally, I wanted to take the opportunity to say that while this series strives to convey the cartoonish nature of these texts and occasionally even the enjoyably melodramatic or absurd aspects of them, none of those elements mitigate the harm that is caused by the parts of them that demonize sexual, religious, and racial minorities. The point is, it's precisely because of how enormously entertaining uh, these texts were that they gave life to harmful tropes that have survived from the 19th century to present day. I hope it's clear that while we have something of a gallows humor in our approach to these texts, uh, we take deadly seriously the consequences of their imagined monsters. So with that in mind, here is episode four of Monster in the Mirror. And now, this week's episode of The Monster in the Mirror. I find this to be one of your kind's greatest innovations, Mr. Wells. To capture a song in a matchbox and unleash it with the gentlest of motions. The pleasure for me lies precisely in that ingenious mechanism by which one carefully, delicately, breaks the silence. Reverend, you're a beacon of hope to heterosexual Baptists like myself. What's the first thing you say to yourself when you look in the mirror each morning? Marriage is between a man and a woman. The song of fear rarely erupts unbidden, Mr. Wells. It wants the delicate touch that sets this music box to work. In America, a little flattery goes a long way. 
Senator Hawley, before I offer my testimony today, I'd like to commend you on being a critical voice speaking up against the woke agenda. Would you agree that you're a really, really big deal? I'm extraordinary. Yes. Yes, you are. Now, as the president of Faith and Family Focus, I want to talk about a group of people who don't know how good they had it when they couldn't vote. Would that be women? Bingo. For the nightmare to work, your kind must not only believe that the monster is breathing down their necks. They must also believe that the monster's defeat is almost, almost, within their grasp. They must couple their disgust with a ballooning sense of self-importance, zealous devotion to the patriots in the trenches alongside them. And once they're all wound up, the concert can begin. Okay, Matt, are you ready for a close-up? This audience wants to see a hero on stage. So what is the hero asking his followers to do? We are fighting for truth. Then why are you asking them to do it? Because it's, quote, a big moneymaker. Oh, wow, I, I didn't think they'd applaud that one. Uh, okay, now do your usual spiel about doctors mutilating children. Fighting to protect our kids from mutilation in the name of gender... That's right, Matt. They're also fighting to keep your inner child feeling like an important person. And what are those throngs of adoring fans here to give your inner child? And the sort of affirmation that he desperately longs for and needs and deserves. Uh, okay, now make clear how they should respond if a white Christian guy like you starts brainwashing their children. Sit back in silence and allow our kids to be victimized. Wow, man, you got them super wound up. I bet you could straight up tell them that they're in a cult that fosters delusion and creates an identity crisis, and they just keep clapping. A cult which fosters delusion, intentionally creates an identity crisis. Several gentlemen in the crowd burned down a school after that. I had the fortune of being present as they did it. Breathtaking. Why, Mr. Wells, you're crying. How very maudlin of you. I suppose even a genius like yourself cannot comprehend what your species is capable of if you wind them up and wind them up and wind them up and wind. Oh dear me, I've broken your little music box. I suppose my touch isn't always so delicate after all. If it isn't obvious by now, Christian nationalism is kind of a con. Yes, it's a movement fueled by true believers who are genuinely consumed by the delusions that they disseminate to the rank and file. But at the same time, it's also about wealthy, powerful people cheating the rank and file out of their money, their resources, and their lives. Like owners of a gaudy casino where the house always wins, these grifters lure the masses with the promise that if they fork over just a little more cash and have just a little more faith, their lives, and that of the nation they idolize,
could be transformed into heaven on earth. In order to make America great and glorious again, I am tonight announcing my candidacy for President of the United States. Of all the authors examined in this series, perhaps none of them would have respected the con artistry of Christian nationalists more than Richard Haldeman, known by his pen name, Richard Marsh. One of the most popular writers you've probably never heard of, Marsh made his living on a series of wildly popular bestsellers at the turn of the century, grotesque chillers involving murderous dolls and bizarre psychological experiments. He was also quite literally a con artist, whose attempts to profit off forged checks earned him 18 months of hard labor in 1884. Marsh's taste for outright fraudulence even showed up in his literary life. Many scholars have observed that he was happy to plagiarize works as famous as Charles Dickens's A Christmas Carol, as well as cannibalize his own work. His talent for con artistry is important when talking about the work we're examining today, his best-selling novel, The Beetle. It's a book that's likely unknown to you, and it may surprise many of you to learn that its success in 1897 overshadowed another horror novel about a foreign monster, one we've already examined in this series, Dracula. The most famous literary nightmare of the past 130 years was eclipsed by Marsh's tale of a shape-shifting Egyptian demon who has a taste for occasionally transforming into a giant beetle and when not taking an insectile form, morphing from a man to a woman and back again. So why would Marsh's history of fraud matter to a discussion of the beetle? Well, it's because Marsh treats the villain's gender fluidity as a kind of con game in itself, a scam that defrauds God and man. But in addition to talking about the obvious homophobia and transphobia on display, we're also going to discuss how, in his preoccupation with the Beatles' sexual transgressiveness, Marsh betrays more than a little admiration for its, his, her, their criminal schemes. And as such, his tale of a cross-dressing terror illuminates the complex of hate, fear, and fascination with which Christian nationalists tell some of their most vicious lies, the ones about LGBT people. This episode contains transphobic and homophobic audio clips, as well as depictions of transphobic violence. Please take a moment to prepare yourself. What's fundamental to the beetle is this, it's a shape-shifting, gender-fluid creature. The questioning of a sexual binary elicits confusion, disorientation, fear, alarm, possibly some elements of fascination, but predominantly, I think, kind of negative. You know, it's treated negatively within that text. This is Dr. Vicki Margery. She's a principal lecturer in the humanities at the University of Brighton. She focuses on radical politics, feminism, and late Victorian cultural studies. In our conversation, Dr. Marguerite observed that her students instantly recognized the parallels between the homophobia and transphobia of Marsh's novel and attitudes circulating today. Today, and particularly the kinds of students that we, that we have at my own university, are very comfortable with talking about gender fluidity and with um, deconstructing the idea that there are fixed genders or fixed sexes, you know, they very much want to question the idea of a sexual binary. But I do see a declinism at work in contemporary British culture. Brexit was motivated by fears about, about decline. The, the outlets which are, or the newspapers which are so very worried about gender fluidity, what's all this about, 
are, are also um, the anti-immigration papers. Like Dracula, the Beatle revolves around a cast of white men and a duo of plucky white women who band together to oppose a supernatural foreign threat. Also like Dracula, it's told through multiple points of view, at least two of which are framed as testimonials. But unlike Stoker, Marsh tries to keep his geographical and thematic focus pretty tight. Almost all the action takes place in London, and while the Beatles' subtitle is a mystery, Marsh isn't interested in exploring the mysteries of theology, or history, or science, all subjects into which Dracula's large cast of characters frequently digress. The mystery here can be summed up in two basic questions. What is the Beatle? And what does the Beatle want? This first question immediately comes into focus through the narration of Robert Holt, the first major character we're introduced to. He's a desperate homeless man, and at the novel's beginning, we find him wandering through the geography of urban London. But in place of Stoker's fabricated news articles, Marsh creates a sense of realism through minute attention to the actual streets and neighborhoods through which Holt drifts aimlessly. In this gritty context, Marsh suggests anyone or anything could be lurking. The greater part of the route was one which I had some sort of acquaintance. It led at first through some part of Walham Green, then along the Lily Road, through Brompton, across the Fulham Road, through the network of streets leading to Sloan Street, across Sloan Street into Lounge Square. Eventually, Holt has the great misfortune of breaking into the Beatles' lair, at which point the true action of the novel begins. This mysterious creature hypnotizes Holt into going back out into those familiar London streets and neighborhoods to do their bidding, the nature of which we'll get to a little later. In this initial encounter with the Beatle, we find that this creature sometimes takes the shape of a human and sometimes the shape of a giant scarab. When in human form, they can appear as a decrepit old man, a slightly younger man, or a beautiful woman. In all their guises though, the beetle is fueled by a desire to do one thing, wreak vengeance of the man whom the beetle hypnotizes Holt into burglarizing and stealing from, Mr. Paul Lessingham. His voice was clear and calm, not exactly musical, yet distinctly pleasant. His sentences were short and crisp, the words which he used were not big ones, but they came from him with an agreeable ease. Paul Lessingham is 100% masculine, 100% Anglo, a leader in parliament, and at the very center of the nation's common life. If he's the opposite of Holt, he's also the opposite of the Beatle. He uses speech forthrightly and in public, rather than maliciously and in secret. In fact, he's such a dudely orator that he even earns the grudging admiration of the other major male character in the novel, Lessingham's romantic rival, Sidney Atherton, whose narration you just heard. As heroic as Paul Lessingham seems to be on the surface though, his fate and that of his monstrous opposite are deeply intertwined. As we'll learn later in the book, Lessingham was once an unlucky tourist in Cairo, where he was imprisoned and tortured by a group known as the Cult of Isis, whose name bears a purely coincidental resemblance to that of the extremist Islamist terror group. The Beatle is an undead priestess in that cult, whom Lessingham calls the Woman of the Songs. 
Through communion with demonic powers, the beetle, or the woman of the songs, has gained the power to shapeshift, hypnotize, and render themselves invisible. And 20 years after Lessingham's escape from the cult, the Beatles using all those powers to pursue the one who got away. He is taken to his bosom. He would put away from him as if she had never been. He would steal from her like a thief in the night. He would forget she ever was. The Avenger follows after, lurking in the shadow, watching till his time shall come. And it shall come, the day of the Avenger. This is part of the Beatles' monologue early in the novel, delivered in Robert Holt's presence. At this point of the story, readers don't know that Paul Lessingham had to strangle the Beatle just to escape the cult of Isis. What is clear, however, is that the Beatle doesn't just want vengeance for physical harm. The passage I just quoted indicates some kind of romantic or even sexual interest in Paul Lessingham. Even though the Beatles' words are laced with hatred, Holt also says of the Beatles' expression, A look of longing came into his face. Of savage, frantic longing. This tortured longing for Paul Lessingham is what drives the Beatle to force Holt to break into Lessingham's residence with the objective of stealing Lessingham's papers. When Holt naturally objects that a wealthy politician probably will have some means of arresting an inexperienced burglar, the Beatle insists that Holt will be able to paralyze his victim with a single word. That's right, the ultimate tool in the Beatles' arsenal is to literally say the words the Beatle in a really scary voice. For reasons that are never explained to us, this incantation somehow has the power to hypnotize the hearer into a terrified stupor. You could say it, it's the opposite of the hysteria that the plural form of the word Beatle would provoke some 60 years later. The Beatle. Against the Beatle, Marsh pits yet another group of white Christian men who must prevent the Beatle from spreading hysteria, androgyny, and all-around national decline. Paul Lessingham's romantic rival, Sidney Atherton, is a scientist who works on biochemical weapons in his spare time, and who ultimately applies his own wits to defeating the Beatle. They're joined by another male character, the renowned private investigator, Augustus Champnell, who takes over the narrative once the Beatle sets their sights on Lessingham's fiancee, Marjorie Linden. The Beatle does this upon reading the letters that Holt steals from Lessingham, which reveal Marjorie's identity. The Beatle becomes obsessed with kidnapping her and hauling her off to Egypt. This plan is born out of a need to take revenge, but it's also because the cult of Isis is always looking for new, white, Christian women to sacrifice. It was their constant practice to offer young women as sacrifices. Preferably white Christian women with a special preference if they could get them to young English women. He vowed that he himself had seen with his own eyes English girls burnt alive. Unlike Dracula, there is no sympathy for the devil here. There's none of Van Helsing's grudging respect for the king vampire. We don't even get MP Shield's fleeting implication that Gen Howe may himself be a great man of history. 
The Beatles' crimes are presented as purely repellent, a stomach-turning scheme to seduce Christian men and immolate Christian women. He's not a military anti-hero of great vision either. There's no grand aim to destroy Europe or transform Britain into a colony of vampires. In fact, the Beatle isn't even necessarily interested in kidnapping multiple white Christian women. Unlike Dracula, they come to England just to get back at one specific Christian man, Paul Lessingham, by kidnapping one specific Christian woman, Marjorie Linden. And the novel ends up suggesting that the Beatle creature's perhaps dominant motivation for coming to London um, is actually a kind of sexual jealousy, a, a frustrated sexual desire for the Paul Lessingham character. Despite these differences, the plot's final section does bear some resemblance to Dracula. The men have to race against time to rescue a hypnotized Marge before the villain hauls her off to Egypt and disgraces her eternally. Marsh seems to run out of creative steam in this last section because ultimately the Beatles attempt to escape Britain is foiled by a freak train wreck. Now I've spent a lot of time, maybe too much, um, pouring over this final section. For any clue as to whether this accident was actually prompted by some miscalculation on the Beatles part. Whatever its cause though, this extremely convenient turn of events foils the Beatles' plans to escape from London with a hypnotized Marjorie in tow. The heroes find her unconscious but alive, along with traces of the Beatles' occult objects in the wreckage. Marjorie survives to marry Paul Lessingham, who becomes one of the greatest statesmen England's ever known. A dramatic change of fortune for a guy who once spent six months watching a parade of human sacrifices. But what about the genius scientist Sidney Atherton, who loses the girl of his dreams, Marjorie, to Paul Lessingham? Well, by the time the Beatles' bloody rags are found in the train wreck, it seems like Sydney's bomb-making interests are something of a red herring. What was the point of spending so much time, as Marsh does, describing these experiments with weaponry? As the novel's last paragraphs imply, though, this obsession with mass death might have not been so superfluous after all. The narrator at this point is Inspector Champnell. He describes a mysterious explosion in the Egyptian desert. A huge hole was discovered in the ground, blasting operations on an enormous scale. In the hole itself and round about it were found fragments of bodies, neither of men nor women, but of creatures of some monstrous growth. Numerous pieces, both of stone and of metal, were seen, which went far to suggest that some curious subterranean building had been blown up. Even though his specialty is in gas-based weaponry, Sidney seems to emerge as the likeliest candidate out of all the heroes who might have been responsible for this mysterious explosion. Right before this, we learn that Sidney has gotten over his heartbreak by marrying Dora Grayling, a wealthy benefactress. It's at least plausible that he joined his knowledge of munitions with her money to destroy the cult of Isis. At the risk of comparing Marsh to Stoker one too many times, it's worth noting there's no quick and clean stake through the heart here, no ambivalence about whether or not to mutilate the corpse of a loved one as in the case of the undead Lucy. Instead, there's an almost sadistic relish to the explosive conclusion, which results in the discovery not of bodies, but of their eviscerated fragments. 
Look, all of the texts we've discussed so far have been queerphobic to some degree. Early in the novel, Dracula gazes a little too long and a little too tenderly at Jonathan Harker. Yen Hao, in The Yellow Danger, becomes infatuated with John Hardy's face at one point and starts whispering lasciviously in his ear. Both of these moments are meant to elicit disgust from Victorian audiences. What sets the Beatle apart, though, is the centrality of queerness to the villain's identity, as well as the extremity of Marsh's loathing for that identity. When a monster changes sex throughout, harbors a homoerotic obsession with his victim, and determines to harm that victim by murdering his fiance, we've moved way beyond momentary references to queerness. Understanding this fixation of Marsh's novel, and its relationship to the book's presentation of Christian nationalism, necessitates zooming out to look at changing notions of gender in 1890s Britain. In his book, The Death of Christian Britain, Scholar Callum Brown argues that the nation in the 19th century contrasted not just with the secular era that came after it, but also with the era that came before it. According to Brown, from 1796 to 1914, Britain was engaged in the greatest period of Christian proselytization the nation had ever seen. Evangelists hoped to transform a nation marked by widespread drunkenness, prostitution, and indifference to Christian ritual. This puritanization, as Brown puts it, manifested in the birth of a temperance movement in the 1830s. But it also resulted in increasingly rigid gender roles for men and women. Historians often talk about kind of angel of the house ideology, you know, which um, depicted women as being sort of ethereal, angelic beings whose um, biological and psychological natures may, meant that they were fundamentally suited to the domestic sphere, the home, the role of wives and mothers, and not to being in a public sphere, which was this kind of competitive, acquisitive, brutalizing world that you know men could survive and even flourish in, but women could not. In contrast to traditional depictions of Eve as the embodiment of sinful womanhood, Victorian Christians tended to regard men as more innately irreligious and woman as more innately pious, the angel of the house that Dr. Marguerite just referred to. And indeed, throughout Victorian literature, it's often on the woman to soften and sanctify the less-than-godly impulses of men. Here's Mina Harker in Dracula chiding her husband's desire to damn Dracula to hell. Don't say such things, Jonathan, or you will crush me with fear and horror. I have been thinking all this long, long day of it, that perhaps someday I too may need such pity. What's happening in the 1880s and 1890s is the deepening and the speeding up of a process of the dismantling, really, of kind of older certainties or near certainties around the distinct nature of the sexes. One of the dominant ways that's happening is through the emergence of first wave feminism and the new women. The new women tend to be a generation of you know, younger women who um, don't want to be restricted to the roles that their mothers have had. They are seeking education, maybe higher education, maybe careers, um, the right perhaps not to marry, the right even to experiment with um, romantic or sexual relationships outside of the institution of marriage. This sense of gendered breakdown was only exacerbated by one of the first modern gay panics. During the infamous 1895 trial of Oscar Wilde, playwright and member of the decadent movement, 
While this episode isn't about Wilde, it's worth lingering on this trial to unpack the key context it provides for Marsh's novel. By not only admitting to but defending his sexuality in a public trial, Wilde summoned a flood of homophobic responses, not least of which was the jury's sentencing him to two years in jail. Now here it's important for me to acknowledge a complicated dimension to this trial and its subsequent legacy. Oscar Wilde has long been regarded as a queer icon. His defense of what his lover Alfred Lord Douglas termed the love that dare not speak its name is today remembered as a watershed moment in the long struggle for LGBT rights. It's important to recognize the significance of Wilde's speech. However, I think it's also important that we recognize, with the hindsight of over a century, the evidence indicating that Wilde did probably pursue inappropriate relationships with adolescent boys. In one of his own letters, Wilde describes romancing a 15-year-old during a vacation in Sicily. During the trial, a chambermaid at one of the hotels that Wilde used for his dalliances reported seeing a 14-year-old in his bed. And then there's the account of French author and known pederast Andre Guide, who describes Wilde as apparently aiding and abetting his own exploitation of young boys. I bring all this up to simply make clear that whatever transgressions Wilde might have committed are disturbing on account of age difference, not sexual orientation. It's his interest in adolescence, not his interest in the male sex per se, that warrants criticism. The same criticism, I might add, that we leveled against M.P. Scheel last episode when discussing his own crimes against his 12-year-old stepdaughter. To the extent that Wilde might have similarly preyed upon male minors, it's the minors part, not the male part, that should alarm us. That is now, however, God-fearing Christians could not or would not parse these distinctions. Instead, they preserved and passed down the smear that paints queer and androgynous people as seducers, morally corrupt predators, groomers. Later in this episode, we'll see how the Beatle captures the appeal of this queerphobic mentality to declinists, whether in the 2020s or the 1890s. Sexual psychopathy of every nature has become so general and so imperious that manners and laws have adapted themselves accordingly. The majority of men clothe themselves in a costume which recalls feminine apparel. Women who wish to please men of this kind wear men's dress and only show themselves in the street with a large cigar in their mouth. Christians who today insist that marriage is between a man and a woman have a lot in common with degeneration theorists such as Max Nordau, who wrote the passage you just heard in his book Degeneration. Theorists like Nordau echoed, in a more sociological and scientific vein, the pious horror of devout Christians who abhorred the mixing of male and female characteristics. A disgust amplified by the wild trials, exposure of London's gay underworld. It's in this context that we should acknowledge how the Beatle actually found a home at a religious publishing house, Skeffington and Sons. Here's Dr. Margrian how that came about. The first publication of, of The Beetle in serial form in a magazine called Answers, according to Mina uh, Halen, who has written on this, the Answers magazine was then very much at a kind of lower class audience. It really sort of traded in um, titillating, salacious, lurid tales of sexual corruption, crime, um, 
etc., etc. When Marsh then found an, an outlet to, to publish that serialization as a as a novel, it was it was Skeffington's, which, as you indicated, is, was very much kind of religious publishing house. It also would have been a move up market. In, in terms of the religious elements of, of the text, you know, I think to a significant extent, I suspect that they are window dressing. They're, they're ways of making more kind of palatable a narrative that very much is trading in, you know, the salacious, the titillating, the lurid. But again, I think it's possible that there is some, you know, some sincerity to the kind of religious worldview of the novel, as well as I suspect it functioning as a, um, as a way of making other things more palatable. While not as relentlessly Christian as Dracula, Marsh does make pretty clear that the fight against the Beatle is a spiritual one. Here's Sidney Atherton praying the Lord's Prayer as a way of calming Marjorie, who has just glimpsed the Beatle for the first time. I repeated aloud the Lord's Prayer as the divine sentences came from my lips. Her tremors ceased. She became calmer until, as I reached the last great petition, deliver us from evil. She loosed her arms from about my neck and dropped upon her knees, close to my feet, and she joined me in the closing words. Flinging herself at Sydney's feet in a kind of religious submission, Marjorie reveals the limits of her taste for independence and strong-mindedness. Despite rebuking her father when he challenges her for wanting to marry Paul Lessingham, she's ultimately a good Christian girl, and at the end she's reduced to a mute damsel in distress requiring the man's physical and spiritual intervention. As if mocking her pretensions to independence, the Beatle not only kidnaps her, but forces her to wear men's clothes. I think Marjorie is, I think Julian Wolfrey says this, Marjorie is in many ways a kind of quite pale version of the moon woman. Because she, what she wants isn't, isn't anything that dramatic. Her claims to independence aren't, aren't you know, super <laughs> big. She, um, she's interested in politics, but predominantly she's interested in supporting her, her soon-to-be husband. Um, we see her in kind of rebellion against her father, who is a, a Tory politician. She ends up being kidnapped by the Beatle creature. The text hints very strongly that she's raped or subjected to some kind of sexual um, violation. She is also stripped naked and forced to wear the clothes of another character, Robert Holt. Uh, a probably lower middle class man, he's worked as a clerk in the past, but he's now become destitute and, and homeless. So. Um, Marjorie is made to endure this humiliation of being dressed up in the guise of this man, but a man who has himself been depicted as feminized through his experience of destitution. So it seems to me that it's as if the novel is saying, it's as if it's endorsing a kind of dominant reactionary representation of the new woman, which was that these women are fleeing from their essential femininity. What they actually desire is to be men. It's as if the text is kind of saying, yes, that is the desire of the new woman. Um, we are going to give Marjorie Linden what she desires. The beetle creature transforms her into the image of a man, but it does so in order to demonstrate that the only kind of man she could hope to be is this very kind of inadequate, effeminized version of a man. In other words, the beetle doesn't just terrorize white Christian women by burning and raping them, but also by degendering them. In that respect, he seems to execute a kind of sick wish fulfillment on the part of men who wish to punish women for no longer playing the angel of the house. Hold on to this sense of wish fulfillment. We'll come back to it later in the episode. The Beatle poses a threat to the men's gender performance too. We're meant to shudder when the Beatle says to Holt, If I were a woman, would you not take me for a wife? Like many a man frightened by the notion of queer sexuality, Holt responds with an urge for violence. I would have given much 
to have been able to strike him across the face. Eventually, the Beatles' influence is so pervasive that it starts to degender the men. When Sidney first meets the Beatle, the villain's appearance coincides with the poisoning of Sidney's friend, Percy. Because the Beatle wants Sidney's help in destroying Paul Lessingham, they lie on top of Percy and revive him through an extremely intimate mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation. Placed in the role of a sleeping beauty, Percy's revived only thanks to the kisses of the Beatles' Prince Charming. Later in the scene, the Beatle transforms from his male figure into scarab form, and then, after shedding clothes, into a woman. Sidney stares at the Beatles' female form, exclaiming, My visitor was not a man, but a woman, and by no means old or ill-shaped either. It's one more moment in which the Beatle toys with the desires of straight men. Meanwhile, as we've alluded to earlier, Paul Lessingham's gender trouble starts with his kidnapping in Cairo, some 20 years prior to the start of the novel. Lessingham's lured into the cult snares through the Beatles' female form, in which, as it turns out, they moonlight as a singer at a cafe. Entranced by the Beatles singing, Paul doesn't notice that the drinks he's being served are making him pretty drowsy. Just as Marsh Forge signatures, the Beatle also profits from impersonation, only reverting to the loathsome priestess of Isis during Lessingham's imprisonment. Since this isn't the first time the Beatle has run this con, we can assume that their ability to seduce tourists of any sex is precisely how the cult acquires its roster of female victims. The ultimate scam in this novel, it turns out, is the Beatles' gender fluidity. I cannot describe to you the sense of horror and of loathing with which the contact of her lips oppressed me. There was about her something so unnatural, so inhuman, I could have destroyed her with as little sense of moral turpitude as if she had been some noxious insect. The fruit of the Beatles scam is the sexualized terror Lessingham describes in this scene. As with Holt, the Beatles' kisses provoke violent urges in Lessingham, combined with a complete inability to act on them. Strapped down and prone, Paul's placed in a position that parallels the exclusively female sacrificial victims of the cult. Many years later, this feminization recurs during the search for Marjorie, Inspector Champnell is disgusted with Lessingham's unmanly response to the kidnapping. This leader of men was rapidly approximating to the condition of a hysterical woman. At this point, let's remember, Lessingham has been built up as one of the manliest of politicians, a true statesman, who transfixes the public with his confident charisma. In threatening his masculinity then, the Beatle threatens the manhood of all of Christian Britain. This is emphasized through the Beatles' Egyptian identity, which we should probably talk about. To the extent that the Beatle is depicted as Egyptian, I think that's very interesting because, of course, Egypt had rich and varied resonances for the late Victorians. So, um, on the one hand, it's the period of kind of fascination with Egyptology, but that fascination is partly a fascination with ancient Egypt and the idea that, that 
ancient Egypt was this kind of great civilization, civilization to, to um, parallel the civilization of contemporary Britain, but it went into decline. So the fear is that, you know, just as Egypt went into decline and became what for the late Victorians was a kind of a, you know, something in its contemporary form that was quite debased, that a similar thing could happen to Britain or might even be in process of happening within Britain. But Egypt is also a, a site of, of kind of um, real fears for the reasons that you've, you know, that, that you've been suggesting in terms of recent history. And related to that, what's very important is the Sudan and the fact that 10 years previously there had been the Mahdiist uprising, you know, um, a nationalist rebellion against the kind of combined Egyptian and British forces in the Sudan that led, as you said, to the killing of General Gordon. So all of those things are in play. Like Iraq's significance to early 2000s America, Egypt and the Sudan was a region where imperial hopes had given way to a military quagmire in the 1880s. A disaster culminating in the fall of Khartoum in January 1885, during which rebels wrested control from Anglo-Egyptian occupiers and killed the leader of the British Army, General Gordon. Prime Minister Gladstone's failure to send enough troops to Gladstone exposed the fragility of the British Empire's designs in Egypt. While Gordon was revered as a Christ-like martyr, British defeat in the Sudan struck many as exhibiting weakness. In a sermon occasioned by Gordon's death, the Bishop of Chichester lamented, Nations who envied our greatness rejoiced now at her weakness. In some sense, then, the Egyptian failure unmanned Britain. In a way similar to what the Beatle does with the book's hysterical, half-conscious, feminized men. Just like the rebels who killed Gordon, the Beatle exposes the weakness of British Christian masculinity. Not only that, but the Beatle also unmans their opponents through methods that are themselves implicitly unmanly. In contrast to English ideals of straightforward and honest men, the Beatle relies on dishonesty, falsity, and illusion. This essential tricksiness of course, epitomizes long-standing stereotypes of Egyptians as untrustworthy, dating back to the ancient Romans. In this context, Marsh implies that the Beatles' gender switching constitutes the ultimate Oriental ruse, an Eastern swindling operation that robs white male tourists of their virility and even their lives. Through the Beatles' Egyptian identity, Marsh also amplifies the monster's threat to white Christian women when the Beatle rents an apartment under a pseudonym, the owner of the space is shocked to find herself shut out from her own property. She responds by casting the Beatle as a typical foreign, unchristian chauvinist. Uh, well, Mr. Arab, I'll take good care that you don't go out again before you've had a word from me. I'll show you that landladies have their rights, like other Christians in this country, however it may be in yours. Marsh implies that the cult's violence against women offers only the most egregious example of a culture that deprives landladies and all ladies of their God-given rights, while allowing men to do whatever they want. Paradoxically then, Egypt and the Beatle represents the land of extremely rigid gender roles, as well as the land of extreme gender fluidity. On the level of pure logic, this oxymoronic take on Egypt makes no sense. At an emotional level though, the contradiction reflects the dual threats that Egypt seemed to pose to British Christianity. On one hand, the British in Sudan had specifically fought an Islamic sect, 
Their defeat at Khartoum seemed to illustrate the threat of Islam, a religion long perceived as the misogynist, woman-oppressing antithesis of a Christianity that supposedly respected women. At the same time, though, by the end of the century, the Egyptian goddess Isis had become the emblem of feminist spirituality. Isis laid the heart of theosophy, the proto-New Age movement we discussed in the first episode. Founder Madame Blavatsky's book Isis Unveiled claimed that Isis represented a goddess-worshipping wisdom religion that had birthed all the world's major religions, including Christianity. In light of this association with feminism, the cult of Isis in The Beatle represents a hyper-feminized attack on Western Christian masculine religion. From this vantage point, defiling the sex binary and defiling the categories of Christian doctrine are one and the same. It's in this context, then, that the Beatles' gender rigidity and their gender fluidity can coexist without any seeming contradiction. As the leader of a specifically Egyptian cult, the Beatle threatens British gender roles in strange paradoxical ways. For getting rid of this threat, the men in the Beatle are rewarded with an almost absurd restoration of heteromonogamy. At the end, Paul Lessingham marries Marjorie Linden, Sidney Atherton marries the benefactress Dora Grayling, and even Sidney's buddy Percy, who is the recipient of the Beatles' kiss, marries one of Dora's bridesmaids. The imperative to perpetuate the Anglo-Saxon race through straight marriage has finally gotten its mojo back. As for the gender-rigid and genderless cult of Isis, as we discussed earlier, either Sidney or some unidentified group of heroes destroys the cult's lair. An allusion to the military's revenge for the death of Gordon that was happening around the same time. What's interesting here is that Dongola is an unmistakable allusion to the expedition British forces mounted in 1896 to reconquer the Sudan. 13 years after Gordon's shameful death, British troops joined Italian forces to successfully defeat the Sudanese separatists. This reconquest began in March 1896 with an advance toward the city of Dongola. While it's unclear whether the expeditionary advance in the Beatles' ending is literally this exact 1896 mission, the similarity to real-life events is unmistakable. This allusion to an actual military operation summons and amplifies that feeling of national redemption, that feeling of the restoration of national manhood, not unlike the satisfaction offered by countless post-9-11 movies where American manly men blow away stereotypical evil Muslim terrorists. I want them to know if they're going to leave a bomb on the side of the road first, we're just going to blow up their little fucking road. You're hurting me. Trust me, I'm not. 24, the two-night premium. What's more, by blowing these genderless bodies to smithereens, this explosion removes a threat to the created order itself. To drive this point home, the book's concluding line declares that the so-called beetle was or is a creature born of neither God nor man. In other words, the beetle doesn't even get the glimmer of redemption 
Mina Harker glimpses in Dracula's dying expression. I shall be glad as long as I live that even in that moment of final dissolution, there was in the face a look of peace. Marsh withholds this peace from his villain. What we get instead is the vengeful pleasure of ruthless, unforgiving annihilation. To have been able to strike him across the face as if she had been some noxious insect. The day of the Avenger. In the nearly 130 years since the Beatles' best-selling debut, the association between androgyny and Eastern heathenism has persisted. It's true that Marsh's Woman of the Songs never enjoyed the spate of adaptations and spin-offs that Marsh's competitor Bram Stoker received. Still, it's clear that Marsh tapped into a profoundly visceral fear that white Christians and the culture they have created continues to harbor. For me, one particularly potent example of this fear is a 2010 tweet by macho pastor Mark Driscoll, who noted that he saw, quote, two Buddhists in orange dresses walk by while he was, not coincidentally, reading about demons for his upcoming sermon. This implicit demonization of orientalized queerness shows up in 20th century pop culture icons like Jafar, the villain of the 1992 animated movie Aladdin. Don't worry. Everything will be fine. Everything will be fine. The diamond. Here, Jafar. I'm not the only one to point out that Jafar's eyeliner and effete line delivery mark him as a coded gay villain. Around the same time, of course, movie-going adults were treated to one of the most famous transphobic villains in movie history, Buffalo Bill, in the crime horror movie Silence of the Lambs. It rubs the lotion on its skin. It does this whenever it's told. Buffalo Bill is a monstrous serial killer who clothes himself in the skin of his female victims in hopes of becoming a woman. As Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, puts it, he has a desire for change symbolized by the Asian moth that is his signature calling card. The significance of the moth is change. Caterpillar into chrysalis or pupa, and from thence into beauty. Our belly wants to change too. Buffalo Bill is white, but as scholar Mary Nakamura suggests, this queer villain is also representative of the barbaric East. He's a Vietnam War veteran, he collects Asian moths, dresses in a kimono, and even at one point, reveals a map of Imperial Japan tattooed on his back. As Nakamura observes, he also poses in a manner that resembles not just the Asian moth, but also the crucified Christ. He is, in other words, an orientalized parody of the silent lamb of the movie's title. Christ, whom Christians understand to be described in the book of Isaiah, when the author speaks of a sheep silent before its shearers. I'm pressing this detour into Hannibal Lecter's territory because even though Silence of the Lambs is about as far from a pure flicks movie as it gets, its power still depends on some version of a narrative captured in The Beetle, the battle between white Christians and the queer oriental predator of Anglo-Saxon Christian women. In the years since Silence of the Lambs, we've had a host of similar monsters. You could look to the antagonist Ra in the movie Stargate, 
which presents a race of aliens on a planet that looks a lot like ancient Egypt. Presented as androgynous, the chief villain, Ra, is played by Jay Davidson, whom audiences would have recognized from his breakout role as the transgender anti-heroine of The Crying Game. There's also Xerxes, the island-wearing Persian villain of the movie 300. Come, your highness. Let us reason together. Which has become a favorite of Christian nationalists who've embraced the refrain of the movie's uber-macho and uber-white Spartan heroes. Molen Labe, come and get our weapons. Come and get them! These examples have paved the way for today's Christian nationalist imagination in which androgynous monsters represent an extra degree of demonic evil, one that seems to originate ultimately in the idolatry of the ancient Near East. A popular meme that Christian conservatives post during Gay Pride Month proclaims, it was pride that turned angels into devils. Moreover, Christians regularly invoke the Canaanite god Molech to denounce what they call the genital mutilation of gender transition surgery for children. Transition of children. Pagan sacrifice of children to the god Moloch. That, that is all that is. Talking about transitioning. Small children. Over and over and over again, Christian nationalists today delight in casting trans people as bent on corrupting Christian innocence, particularly through grooming children. Grooming. Sexual grooming. They're groomers. Okay, groomer. Groomer in chief and assaulting women through legal bathroom access. Trying to get uh, transgenders into the bathrooms. The use of bathrooms is to be based on biological sex. Biological man was letting it all hang out in the ladies' room. In invoking the vulnerability of these women and children, these anti-trans activists play on the same chivalrous sentiments that drive the kidnapping of Marjorie Linden and the race to save her from the Beatles' clutches. The fathers of every other competitor would have come down out of the stands and formed a line in front of William Thomas and saying, hey, tough guy. You want to get in the pool? Because you're going to have to come through us. Echoing the last line of the Beatle, transphobic Christians also declare that the very existence of transgender people epitomizes an offense to what they call the creation order. So God created male and female. And transgender. There is no third sex. There's many sexes. There are only two sexes. God created us male and female. In his image, he created us. The Equality Act that we are to vote on this week destroys God's creation. Marjorie Taylor Greene's exegesis, of course, ignores the profound implications of the Apostle Paul's statement in the letter to the Galatians that there's neither male nor female in Christ Jesus. In fact, anyone who echoes this radical statement on gender, in the words of right-wing commentator John Cardillo, is promoting insanity. Paul Lessingham, one-time prisoner of the cult of ISIS, would have found his words quite familiar. I collapsed, wondering if I had crossed the borderline which divides madness from sanity. Meanwhile, fears about trans and gay people in the military recall the way that the Beatle links gender confusion to the emasculation of a declining nation. In retrospect, 
It's no surprise that Trump tried to ban trans people from serving in the military. For conservatives, the very idea amounts to an invitation for the enemies of freedom to treat America as a doormat. You think that China is thinking about trans pilots? Ted Cruz expressed this combo of transphobia and xenophobia when he approvingly tweeted out a clip comparing footage of Russian soldiers doing push-ups with an animated clip of a female US soldier talking about being raised by two mothers. Cruz's mockery of the US Army clip echoes Inspector Champnell's contempt for Paul Lessingham's so-called feminine emotionality. Cruz might not liken US soldiers to hysterical women, but all the same, he sneers at the idea that anything other than straight masculinity stands a chance against foreign enemies. You can almost hear him thinking incredulously, we wouldn't want America's protectors acting like women now, would we? But Christian nationalists don't just believe that trans people will leave the US vulnerable to attack. Many believe that the increased visibility of trans people in and of itself is a symptom of foreign encroachment. A strategy on the part of shadowy others to spread a woke agenda that strips America of its manliness. And if you've listened to our Dracula episode, you won't be surprised to learn that there's a particular group usually associated with this plot. Does the transgender movement get its origin in Zionism? Yes, it gets its origin in Zionism and it gets its origin in the Talmud, Zohar and Kabbalah. It's a Kabbalistic doctrine of Adam Kadmon. These theories might sound absurd, but they have increasing traction in outlets like the Occidental Observer, which calls LGBT rights a matter of Jewish ethnic warfare. But beyond these anti-Semitic examples, there's also the concept of globo homo, a portmanteau on the right that refers to a supposed global degeneracy hostile to both racial and gender distinctions. This omnipresent, positively gothic villain is dissolving white masculinity into a raceless, genderless collective. Global Homo's threat to white Christians specifically is summed up in any number of UK-based tweets using the term to mock Rishi Sunak, the first Hindu prime minister in British history. All of these conspiracy theories, of course, recall Cold War paranoia about the influence of gay people supposedly rendering the nation vulnerable to communist influence. Today's youth can be enticed to enter the world of homosexuals. This moral decay weakens our resistance to the onslaught of the communist masters of deceit. Monsterizing trans people with unrestrained glee, Christian nationalists provide justification for the extreme acts of violence they wish to inflict. In 2021, anti-trans violence reached a record high, and the terror shows no sign of declining in 2022. This past summer, Proud Boys and known white supremacists showed up to gay bars that they claimed were grooming children through drag shows. Some carried guns and baseball bats. The cops? That is it's sexual. Thank you. This is a good start just to strike fear into the eyes of sinners and the degenerate and abominable people that are occupying this area, but it's not enough. Meanwhile, bomb threats on Boston Children's Hospital, apparently sparked by right-winger Matt Walsh's obsession with that hospital's gender-affirming care, presents the same cathartic thrill to white Christian nationalists as the spectacular train wreck that obliterates the beetle, or the explosion that blows apart the ISIS cult's genderless bodies into fragments. Extremist anti-transgender activists have been using social media to spread disinformation about gender-affirming care. And now the staff at Boston Children's Hospital is receiving violent threats. If that wasn't enough, the court system continues to legitimize the infamous gay panic defense, by which perpetrators of anti-LGBT violence can claim temporary insanity 
in response to unwanted same-sex overtures. Through these various avenues, white Christian men respond to queerness with especially violent reassertions of their manhood, reassertions shot through with sadistic pleasure. We don't make peace with pedophiles. So far, we've talked about the way that the trans person of the Christian right imagination mirrors the androgynous predatory beetle. But we haven't looked at the way that this androgynous villain, in fact, duplicates the wants, fears, and desires of cisgender Christian nationalists themselves. And when we return to Marsh's novel, we can see that its queer phobia is complicated by the fact that the Beatle reflects back to the book's manly men their darkest impulses. Let's start with the ambivalence underlying the Beatle's foreign Egyptian identity. When facing off against the Beatle, Sidney Atherton refers to his chemicals as a kind of magic. It's a semi-ironic remark, to be sure. But on some level, I think you could say that Sidney really does take pride in his own brand of wizardry. Later on, though, he seems a lot less cocky, even admiring of the Beatle, using... In matters of prestidigitation, we Westerns are among the rudiments. We've everything to learn. Orientals leave us at the post. This high regard for the Beatles' trickery makes sense, given Marsh's own history of forgery. In context, Marsh seems to suggest that the problem with the Beatles' magic isn't that it's foreign or oriental. It's that it puts the efforts of white men to control the elements to shame. If there's admiration here for the superiority of so-called oriental magic, maybe it's because Marsh also encodes in his novel a kind of guilt British efforts to subjugate the cultures and traditions of the East. Here's Dr. Margery again about the meaning of Paul Lessingham's youthful exploits in Cairo. One way of thinking about the Beatles is that it, it's, it's a reverse colonization narrative. What would happen if they, meaning the, meaning the colonial other, did to us what we did to them? So if we went to, to their country and invaded and, and tried to dominate them, what would happen if they did it back to us? Um, and I think the Beatles is very much doing that. And, you know, that makes it possible to read the text as being, among other things, a kind of a text that's surfacing a, a guilty conscience about about empire. Well, actually, maybe maybe this is the true face of British imperialism. You know, it's not actually been about the civilizing mission. It is a kind of salacious adventurism, and that's what we see in this politician when we strip away the kind of veneer of you know statesmanlike respectability. Potentially, there's at least a nucleus there, something um, something reasonably transgressive, the surfacing of guilty conscience about empire. In other words, this Egyptian avenger flings back to the British the true nature of the colonial project. Not a noble quest to spread Western Christianity, but a search for titillating thrills, motivated primarily by young white guys looking for what Paul Lessingham calls unsavory amusement. But when we consider the Beatles' core attribute, androgenized sexualized aggression, this creature of the night also seems to cast the reverse image of the hero's repressed taste for gender fluidity and eroticized violence. There are lingering descriptions of Robert Holt under the mesmeric control of the beetle creature, who at the time he takes to be a man, and the reader has no reason to doubt is a man. So in these scenes, Robert Holt is stripped naked, um, and his body is invaded and probed by the beetle creature in what is very, very clearly presented as a kind of sexual violation, a, a male rape, basically. 
And although it's presented in the register of the horrific, it is lingered over so much that I can't help suspecting that there is some kind of readerly pleasure at stake in it, or at least that that's what the text is making available for um, for its readers. The, the pleasure of a kind of fantasised, passive, feminised sexual encounter for a male with another male. Holt isn't the only one for whom fear of the monster is a kind of desire, to quote cultural critic Jeffrey Cohen. Remember the significance of Marjorie being forced to wear men's clothes? About how it's a kind of vengeful fantasy on the part of white Christian men eager to punish the new woman for stepping out of line? If there's one character who embodies that need to get back at women for not knowing their place, it's probably Sidney Atherton. And insofar as that punishment is enacted by the Beatle, this unholy thing from the underbelly of Cairo really just duplicates the entitlement to women's bodies exhibited by Sidney, a paragon of macho Englishness. A major subplot, as we've discussed, involves the competition between Atherton and Lessingham for Marjorie Linden's hand. If that wasn't enough, Percy Woodenville, the hapless sidekick revived by the Beatles' kiss, is also hopelessly in love with Marjorie. But where Percy is simply happy to see Marjorie in a warm relationship with Lessingham, Sidney is violently jealous. His bitterness actually sounds a lot like the Beatles' vow of vengeance towards Lessingham. Here's Sidney again, jokingly but not jokingly, calling fire and brimstone down on his rival. May your following, both in the house and out of it, no longer regard you as a leader. May your party follow after other gods. May your political aspirations wither and your speeches be listened to by empty benches. The quasi-biblical tone of Atherton's invective is familiar. It echoes the Beatles' vow that the so-called Day of the Avenger has come for Paul Lessingham. Sidney even poisons Paul Lessingham's cat in a remarkably cruel experiment just for the satisfaction of ruining something Paul Lessingham loves. In other words, Atherton had something of the makings of a member of the Cult of Isis in his own right. This rage towards Paul Lessingham goes hand in hand with a desire to possess Marjorie that almost, almost leads him to join forces with the Beatle in bringing Paul Lessingham down. She loves him. That is not well. If you choose she shall love you, that will be well. Indeed. And pray, how is this consummation, which is so devoutly to be desired to be brought about? Put your hand into mine. Say that you wish it. It shall be done. Moving a step forward, he stretched out his hand towards me. I hesitated. There was that in the fellow's manner which, for the moment, had for me an unwholesome fascination. Sidney, of course, eventually resists the temptation, choosing instead to partner with Lessingham in defeating the Beatle. But the fact that the Beatle's offer is so appealing reveals a lot about the degree to which Sidney feels entitled to Marjorie's hand and the lengths to which he might go to win it. But maybe the most disturbing sign of the Beatle's resemblance to Atherton comes from the lips of Marjorie Linden herself. In her journal, Marjorie scoffs at Atherton's interest, 
music that he already has an admirer, the young, wealthy Dora Grayling. Marjorie speculates that Dora's admiration demonstrates the power that Sidney's known to exert over women. He is tall, straight, very handsome, with a big mustache, and the most extraordinary eyes. I fancy that those eyes of his have as much to do with Dora's state as anything. I have heard it said that he possesses the hypnotic power to an unusual degree and that if he chose to exercise it, he might become a danger to society. I believe he has hypnotized Dora. If that wasn't enough, later in the novel, we literally see Sidney exert this hypnotic power to extract information from poor Robert Holt, who was already hypnotized into doing the Beatles' bidding. Finally, while Sidney doesn't wind up with Marjorie, his happily ever after does include marrying Dora, a wealthy, independent, assertive woman who represents perhaps a milder version of the challenge that the Beatle presents to the Victorian ideal of the angel of the house. So overall, there's a sense in which the androgynous, sexually aggressive Beatle doesn't just reflect qualities that Sidney possesses, but qualities that he desires. And then finally, there's Paul Lessingham, the great hope of the future, symbol of a potential remedy for British decline. Even at the very end, when supposedly normalcy has been re-established and he has gone on to become this great statesman and he's married to Marjorie and, you know, normalcy has apparently been restored, it only takes um, someone to mention the word beetle for him to descend into what the text calls feminine hysterics. The multiple ways in which the Beatle offers a kind of photo-negative of their foes returns us to the queer-phobic obsessions of white Christian nationalists today. As much as the Christian right accuses the LGBT community of feminizing and therefore weakening the nation, its policies, like banning expertly trained trans soldiers from the military or refusing to provide critical mental health resources for LGBT youth, that actually weaken America's future prospects. Meanwhile, it's abundantly clear that accusations of LGBT grooming reflect a penchant for grooming on the part of key members of the religious right themselves. It's richly ironic that a summer of right-wingers harassing drag shows began with the revelation that the Southern Baptist Convention, home to some of the most powerful transphobes in Congress, keeps a secret database of hundreds of known sexual offenders in ministry. This revelation only adds to the many, many scandals in which pastors have either been found guilty of sexual abuse or of covering it up. It's true that not all queerphobic Christian nationalists are literally abusers, but the ideology they promote is nonetheless one that ascribes near limitless power to men, including the power to demand absolute compliance from women and children. Just as in the Beatle, it seems that fear of the queer predator goes hand in hand with a desire for the very powers of sexual coercion and psychological manipulation that this imaginary monster supposedly possesses. In fact, the kind of desire I'm talking about might not just be a drive to possess the powers of the putative enemy, but to possess the enemy's very bodies. One need only look at all the instances in which right-wing Christians rant about the so-called butchering of trans teens' private parts, or even the Florida legislation that could force child athletes to expose themselves to doctors if they are suspected of being trans. These displays of prurient obsession 
are just a couple of the many ways that transgender people are constantly sexualized by their oppressors. In this respect, those oppressors offer a kind of sequel to the lingering fascination that the Beatles' queer-phobic heroes have with their adversary. The mixture of desire, loathing, zeal for white womanhood, and rah-rah patriotism found in the Beatles' pages is unsettlingly visionary. To me, the book foreshadows the degree to which Christian nationalists today exhibit all these emotional intensities in their homophobic, transphobic rhetoric and behavior. Just as in the novel, Christian nationalists abhor LGBT people as the leading edge of foreign encroachment while projecting onto them the powers of coercion they themselves hope to attain. Post-Christian nationalism today, we must identify and address this complex of visceral contradictory feelings. Only by noting the extremity of those feelings can we provide its many targets with the care and respect they deserve. And as we do so, maybe we'll actually pose a real challenge to the beetle-like demagogues who through illusion and fear defraud the faithful out of their sanity and the rest of us out of our safety. Thanks for listening today, y'all. As a reminder, you can help us keep doing this pro-democracy work by becoming a paid subscriber. Get ad-free listening, access to the 500-episode archive, a premium episode, and more. Go sign up now. It only takes a few clicks. www.axismundi.supercast.com. The link is in the show notes.